And uh, I want to begin really with, I suppose, follow up remarks on um, COVID-19 and the protests in uh, China. Uh, why? Um, well, one, because they're nationwide and they're politically important, uh, but also because uh, what we've heard is uh, news of some sort of backtracking uh, by the central uh, authorities. And uh, as is the way with um, a lot of um, central authorities, they're blaming minions uh, for being too strict, too tough, not applying the policy correctly and all the rest of it. Uh, but of course, really what we're dealing with is the central regime in Beijing under uh, Xi, President Xi. Um, again, just to reiterate the point, lockdowns, great idea. Uh, this is how you deal with the outbreak of uh, horrible diseases uh, that are infectious. Uh, what you do is you try to stop them spreading. And if you're successful uh, at stopping them spreading, you have the possibility uh, of actually wiping them out. Um, so we know that um, in terms of previous uh, similar uh, viruses to COVID, but we also know, you know, with uh, diseases such as polio, uh, that you can, uh, through um, uh, at least vaccination in that sense, you can stop it. But as I said, you know, in, in recent years, uh, they have been successful in stopping um, um, similar things to uh, COVID um, from grabbing a hold of the population and becoming endemic. Um, so it was quite right uh, to go for lockdowns in China. It was quite right in Britain, even though we were dealing by then uh, with a pandemic uh, to go for lockdowns. Why? Not because you could have uh, eliminated uh, the virus, um, but what you are basically doing, and the government was correct here, or at least its advisors were correct, um, what you were doing is um, basically trying to save the NHS, the National Health Service, from being overwhelmed um, while you developed a vaccine and while you rolled out the vaccine. And uh, the NHS would have been uh, overwhelmed. I mean, I haven't really followed Matt Hancock and, and whatever the hell the program he's been on or whatever, but you can't, you can't avoid it. And one thing I came across uh, was the warning uh, that the government received of potentially uh, 820,000 uh, deaths. Um, so under those circumstances, lockdown, that's right. Uh, brilliant scientists, uh, not least in Oxford, uh, developed at fantastic time, um, a vaccine insisted uh, that this was on a no uh, profit basis, but uh, other companies also developed uh, uh, vaccines. And certainly in Britain, you know, a, a good proportion of the population has not only been vaccinated, uh, but speaking as a official old age get, uh, I have uh, received my booster, so that's three plus one, uh, uh, and I think that's pretty common uh, now, right? So, uh, yes, in China, uh, the initial dithering, the initial attempt basically to see, you know, like outbreak of virus, what outbreak, um, that was terrible. And if it had been um, locked down then and there when they first detected it, uh, we wouldn't have had uh, a, a pandemic. And the reason why they had to have a lockdown in, in Britain is in no small part due uh, to the fact that Jeremy Hunt, our glorious chancellor uh, at the present time, when he was health secretary, followed Labour's uh, programme of just-in-time um, um, hospital-type regimes i.e. Uh, they got rid of a lot of spare beds. What's the point of spare beds? Uh, we don't need them. Uh, well, you do when, when you've got a pandemic on, when you've got something of an emergency, then you need that spare uh, capacity. And precisely the reason why I pick out Hunt here particularly is because under him, the NHS and government agencies went through a wargaming 
uh, exercise called uh, Signet. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, um, what they said is there's some sort of disease coming in from Asia and what it turned, they abandoned the, the wargaming uh, exercise because the NHS was overwhelmed, but they didn't want to do anything about it. So they just abandoned um, uh, the exercise and hoped that no one would notice. Well, I didn't notice uh, until the pandemic uh, came along and when all of that stuff came to light. Now, some have talked uh, about China's failed uh, zero uh, COVID uh, policy. Well, sorry, uh, I have to snort uh, uh, at that. It's true that it's run out of, um, you know, um, it's at the end of the road. Um, it's not the answer. But the fact of the matter is, here you are, a country uh, that is still, it, no one can classify it as an advanced uh, economy. Yes, it's the world's second biggest economy. It's perhaps, don't know about China and India, either the world's biggest uh, country in population terms, or is it second now? I don't know which. Either way, here you are, you had a country where uh, this disease began, and I don't think it began from a laboratory leak. I don't think it was a deliberate leak. Uh, I think it most likely began in the fish market. Um, and yet, look at the statistics. Uh, you know, per million, this is just from my memory, I haven't got it written down, but we've got it in the Weekly Worker article. Uh, you know, what you've got is deaths per million in China, something like 28, 28 deaths per million due to COVID. In Britain, an advanced capitalist country, a country that's had a national health service since 1945, uh, the death rate was what, 6,000, 6,600 and something thousand per, mil per million. Anyway, a uh, huge, huge, huge difference. So anyone who talks about the failure uh, of China's uh, uh, policy, I'm sorry, to me, that's just treating, yeah, okay, old gits like me as, uh, you know, disposable uh, items, because it's true uh, that if we look at those who tend to end up in acute units, which we've got a shortage of uh, in Britain, uh, they tend to be old, they tend to have respiratory uh, problems. But the average death, the average age of death from COVID uh, is 80. Uh, so in terms of China, has their policy failed? No, it hasn't failed. Has their vaccination program succeeded? No, uh, it hasn't. And uh, yeah, I don't know what uh, position they're in to import RNA uh, vaccines, presumably from India, uh, that, that were developed in the United States or Germany, um, or to um, purchase uh, the license to manufacture it in China. I don't know enough about that, uh, but clearly that's the way things have to go. And so what we're seeing at the moment is announcements from China about vaccinations and about easing the lockdown. Now, the problem is precisely if they ease the lockdowns too much, uh, then you're into the disease uh, simply takes off and uh, you are then talking about potentially hundreds of thousands uh, of, of deaths. So there is a way out uh, for China, but fundamentally it relies on vaccinations and fundamentally it relies on persuading old gets uh, like me in China uh, to get vaccinated uh, because it tends to be elder people. And therefore, I'm guessing people in the countryside uh, who haven't got themselves vaccinated, certainly haven't got themselves fully uh, uh, vaccinated. And as I said, I think that's very much a question of persuasion. On the other hand, knowing the nature of China, Maybe they go and say, well, you ain't getting your old age pension this week unless you get a jab. I don't know. Either way, that's where the answer uh, 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 is. Now, I, I think it was really worthwhile um, um, us bringing up in our little article on uh, COVID-19 in China this week. Um, those on the left that were advocating zero uh, covid uh, yeah, you could have had zero COVID under the conditions I've just described if it had been isolated 
in Wuhan and you had a lockdown in Wuhan. But once it was out, uh, in my opinion, I, I don't think that was possible. But you had those in Britain, Morning Star, Diane Abbott, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, the list is long imagining uh, that you could. And we're criticizing the government uh, for actually relying on uh, the vaccination uh, uh, program. I think they were profoundly wrong uh, there. I'm not saying uh, that vaccines are the answer to everything, um, but nonetheless, uh, I would guess uh, that in terms of prolonging um, life, uh, other than you know basic sanitation, uh, I would have thought vaccinations have played the major role uh, in the 20th century uh, to um, lengthening life. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, uh, you know, people that had suffered uh, from polio. Um, I know that they're detecting polio um, germs um, in the London sewage system uh, now. So we, we can't afford to be complacent. People need to get their kids vaccinated. They need to get vaccinated, but precisely vaccinated. Uh, that's the answer. Uh, to it. And I, I must admit, I did look up myself uh, the question of the success of vaccination. And there's a long list of, um, you know, diseases um, that now can be successfully prevented uh, by vaccination. And I did read for what it's worth in Scientific Americans, so it's not worth less, uh, an article by a scientist promising uh, that uh, within 10 years, even the common cold uh, could be conquered. I say even the common cold. Why? Because the common cold is a real bugger uh, because there are at least at least 160 varieties of the damn thing. Um, uh, more like 200. Um, so to get a vaccination uh, for the common cold that works uh, would be a huge uh, achievement. And again, don't dismiss uh, um, the importance of that. Um, because, yeah, you and me get a sniffle, uh, but the older you get, uh, the more likely you are uh, that a sniffle turns into pneumonia and you die uh, from these things. So, yes, uh, in, in terms of extending life, um, that would definitely be worthwhile uh, uh, doing. I thought it was worthwhile tacking on here. I know we can have the same old uh, debates. They're not worthless. Uh, but I just thought, you know, reading around the literature uh, on China, the protests, COVID-19 and all the rest of it, in my mind, it, it did come up because you read it in the left wing press, you read it in the mainstream press. What is the nature of China? Well, I just looked up some statistics. Um, I think Michael Roberts has got a little posting uh, uh, this week, by the way, on China and uh, what is it? Uh, and just providing some statistics. So I haven't read uh, Michael's uh, post. Uh, this is from uh, elsewhere. Okay, so what we have in China is a private sector that in terms of the top 500 companies, listed 500 companies uh, in China, 42% of it today is accounted for by private capital. Uh, that's down from 55%, but this uh, decrease is at least due, uh, in terms of what I've been reading, not to Z's crackdown uh, on the private uh, sector and uh, um, you know the common good and all that sort of stuff. It is COVID-19 lockdowns uh, that have done it um, uh, in terms of the, the worth uh, of various um, uh, private uh, companies uh, in China. Um, the state accounts for something like 40% uh, percent, um, of um, the wealth of the top listed um, 500 companies. Um, of course, that leaves, roughly speaking, a 20% like gap. Uh, and that's accounted for by what are called mixed uh, uh, companies. And what does that mean? I don't know. It could mean uh, that the government is actually the controlling uh, share owner, uh, either because it's got the majority of shares or because it's got what we call a golden share. I don't know. Either way, that gives you a rough, um, how should you put it, rough and ready description of um, industry services. And then, of course, what we've got 
uh, is a declining agricultural sector, um, which accounts for now 24% uh, of um, wealth in China GDP, for what that figure is worth. Um, but of course, that is now um, private. Uh, the, the communes were abandoned and they went over to um, private um, agriculture uh, and trade in agricultural uh, uh, products. Uh, now, of course, the Trotskyist uh, tradition, I think in an anti-Marxist way, or should I say in a non-Marxist way, anti is too strong a term, in a non-Marxist way, uh, defined the Soviet Union uh, famously in the 1930s as a worker state based on property forms. Well, the normal standard Marxist approach to deciding what a society is, is basically not according to ownership, uh, but how surplus is extracted and how the surplus is disposed of. In other words, you could have uh, a situation um, where uh, all property is owned by the state. Uh, that's quite conceivable. That was the Soviet Union. Okay, you had collective farms, but to all intents and purposes, de facto, uh, they were state controlled, state owned. And of course, um, far from Stalin in his uh, 1952 economic problems of socialism saying that they disposed of uh, their uh, products in the form of commodities. No, they didn't. These were delivered according to targets to the point where in the 30s, peasants not only in a, on a large scale went hungry, but on a large scale uh, starved. Either way, um, that would be the beginning of a Marxist approach to saying what was the Soviet Union? Well, what about China uh, on that basis? Um, you know, some describe it as a state capitalist. Uh, the SWP I was reading um, were telling their people on the back page of Socialist Worker this week, dealing with the COVID protests in China, is China socialist? Well, you know the answer there, no, it's not. Um, it's been state capitalist since 1949. It's state capitalist in 2022. Uh, the problem I've got with all sorts of th these labels um, is that any Marxist analysis has to really go beyond labels. And I actually prefer uh, the designation of that China is an X social formation. I don't mean it was X like an X parrot, but you give it any letter you want. It's a social formation. And the job of any Marxist analysis is to locate its dynamics. Uh, it, and it, and it's, how should it, it, it's course of travel over history. And if you just label something state capitalist and say, well, it was state capitalist, is state capitalist, how does that explain Deng? How does that explain uh, that something like half uh, the listed companies uh, in China are capitalist, um, private capitalist, not state, private capital? Uh, that's what we're uh, talking about. Uh, what about Chinese agriculture, the change from communes uh, to private peasant uh, agriculture? How is that explained by state capitalism? Well, the SWP tells us that it's all to do with military competition and the accumulation of capital. Capital? Uh, was that what was going on under Mao? Uh, capital? Self-expanding value? Did the law of value operate? Was there money? Uh, no Marxist would say that. Anyone who's read Good old Tony Cliff. Well, just read it. This is his words. You know, is there capital in the USSR? Does the law of value operate? No, no, no. But what he says is something akin to the law of value operated through military competition. That tells you nothing. You know, Lenin's uh, Soviet Union was in military competition. It didn't want to be invaded. Well, what does that say? Uh, Lenin, interestingly, did describe Soviet industry a state capitalist. Uh, agriculture was an entirely uh, different uh, question. Um, but he said this was an advance um, on what we previously had. But this was state capitalism controlled by the state. But what sort of state? A state that it was, a, was, a, was that was committed uh, uh, to the global revolution uh, that, however, attenuated, uh, still genuinely 
uh, represented uh, the working class in terms of its program. Um, anyway, the, the point I really want to make is that we actually live in extraordinarily complex times and we live in a situation uh, of where not only will the transition from capitalism to communism see elements of the market and uh, conflict between these two uh, laws uh, that can be contained temporarily, at least according to classic Marxism, but we also have a capitalism uh, that can no longer simply be described as a capitalism. Uh, it's got monopoly, it's got unemployment benefit, it's also got the political economy of the working class within it. Uh, things like limiting working hours, like 10 hour a day uh, in the 19th century. All of these things mean that as Marxists, we shouldn't simply use the word, and if we do, we should think about it, the word capitalism. Uh, we need to actually locate the real capitalism that we've got, and we need to locate these, in my view at least, these failed transitions uh, towards communism. Um, either way, uh, the world is complex and China is incredibly uh, uh, complex and easy answers um, um, is something that we should uh, uh, keep our um, uh, distance uh, uh, from. Anyway. That was a bit of a diversion from um, a week in politics, I readily uh, confess. Ukraine, uh, we're now into a situation where General Winter uh, is becoming a real factor in the war. So you can look on your TVs, look at your newspapers and see lots of pictures of tanks and artillery pieces and trucks bogged down in mud. And uh, we have uh, various uh, news items uh, for example, the attempt by uh, Russian forces under these very trying, difficult circumstances to encircle, I'm going to try to get it right, Bakhmut uh, in the east, that's in the Donbass. Uh, we've also had, of course, the withdrawal of uh, Russian forces from the city of Kherson. Uh, I have read, uh, I, I don't think it's... Um, beyond the realms of possibility, because it was so successful and was carried out, as far as I can tell, without any significant loss of life or equipment, no abandonment of large numbers, no leaving behind vast arsenals of tanks and trucks and ammunition and all the rest of it. There have been stories uh, about how this was uh, a negotiated withdrawal, i.e. you can have the, the city, uh, will keep the troops and Ukraine agrees to uh, not to attack as the withdrawal is happening. Withdrawals are very difficult uh, militarily, especially across such uh, a river as the Dieppe. So it's at least feasible uh, that that was a either nod and wink, uh, but something that was agreed uh, both in Moscow, both in Kiev. Uh, but also was uh, uh, made known to the commanders on the ground. Um, that's, that does strike me, at least, as uh, a pretty good explanation of why uh, the withdrawal from that city was so successful, far more successful uh, than Dunkirk, um, you know, where I don't know how many thousands and tens of thousands uh, were left behind as uh, prisoners. And talking about talks, uh, what we have... Um, is a situation where America basically told Zelensky he's got to stop his hard line uh, against talks. This looks bad PR. We've had General Miley, uh, chief of staff in the United States, saying that if there's an opportunity to talk, grab it with both hands. So there's been a slight divergence between, I'll call it the Pentagon and uh, the White House. The White House obviously is in charge. But basically what Biden was saying to, to Zelensky is you cannot stick or shouldn't stick uh, with your position that you'll only talk to uh, Putin um, when it comes to some uh, uh, treaty uh, after the last Russian soldier has withdrawn uh, from pre-2014 pre Ukrainian lands. Um, Zelensky was basically told uh, that this isn't tenable, doesn't look good. Uh, you've got to show that you're reasonable. And we now have a situation 
uh, of where the boot is on the other foot, so to speak, uh, because there was talk of some sort of summit over Ukraine uh, between Putin and uh, Biden, showing you who's really in charge. Um, and uh, Putin has turned around and said, only if you recognize the annexation of the four oblasts um, in Ukraine. And of course, uh, the Biden administration has said, well, no go. Either way, what's significant about all of that, I think, uh, is that if negotiations had ever gone away, and of course they never had, uh, they're now back at the center stage uh, of things. So although we've had, I think, some quite significant Ukrainian advances, like uh, the capture of uh, Kherson, that's not a nothing. Uh, you know, even if it's only symbolic, it's still a huge symbol uh, when it comes to Putin and uh, the Russian army and the Russian population to lose Kherson, uh, okay, without a fight, uh, that's something. Okay, in the East, we've got sort of slogging, slow grinding war. Yes, we saw a Ukrainian advance in the North uh, of the East, North uh, East. Nonetheless, what we seem to be um, uh, experiencing is a 21st century version of something akin uh, to the Western Front in World War I. Uh, this is very much a war of position rather than a war of maneuver, which is something I always sort of expected would happen. Um, but um, on the other hand, this is, well, it was, I should say, was perfect, uh, at least in the um, Ukrainian East, perfect uh, territory for fighting large-scale tank battles. Um, you know, this World War Two, you know, huge, uh, tank battles. I think the world's biggest uh, tank battle, I think it was Kursk. I don't know how many tanks were involved, but thousands and thousands uh, of tanks. Well, what we've seen in the Ukraine war isn't the end of tank warfare. Tanks are still powerful weapons, but we've seen the end of the tank as the main deliverer on the battlefield of shock and awe. Um, which really had been in place, I don't know, what, since 1917, when the British invented and deployed uh, the tank. You know, this was not the cavalry. This was a sort of invulnerable uh, uh, cavalry. Um, and the problem with uh, tanks was only your, um, your the difficulty you had of supplying it with more fuel and more ammunition. Uh, okay, they could break down, I know all that, but nonetheless, uh, the point is being made. And so when I listen to Zelensky uh, saying that what we need is tanks uh, from the West, and that will finish off the Russian army, um, I'm hugely sceptical. Uh, now, in terms of my doing a little bit of research into this, yes, if you take Russian shoulder-launched um, anti-tank missiles, I don't know about them. The ones that I saw weren't particularly shoulder launch, but were launched from a tripod that had to be carried by two people. I don't know how sophisticated uh, they are compared with uh, these laws, um, first you know, developed in Sweden, uh, that can aim at a tank and then go up and then go down uh, into its vulnerable uh, turret. Uh, I don't know about that. Either way, uh, I think with uh, shoulder launched uh, missiles and with drones, uh, the age of the tank, um, you know, is over, uh, as I said, as the main um, deliverer of shock and awe um, on the battlefield. Um, okay. Um, in the context of um, the Ukraine war, also let's just note the um, agreement, first of all, by the EU, um, and now by the G7 plus Australia to impose a $60 uh, price cap uh, on Russian oil. How the hell they're going to enforce it, I don't know. They say oh, it's going to be the London um, insurance uh, companies. It will be uh, uh, done because you ain't going to give coverage uh, to Russian tankers uh, and we'll discover which ones they've secretly purchased. I'm utterly unconvinced. I mean, I, maybe I, I, I'll be wrong on this one. To me, that it very much strikes me as a gesture and it could be it could be one of those gestures 
uh, a bit like Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, uh, that mean that uh, it's um, it, it's the EU, it, it's Japan, uh, it's America's uh, allies and rivals uh, which suffer uh, because, of course, what we have in the United States, bar very specialist oil, uh, the United States is self-sufficient. I don't know about the latest figures. Last time I looked it up, the United States was the world's largest producer of gas and oil, um, followed by Russia, followed by Saudi Arabia. Uh, and my guess would be um, that Saudi Arabia and Russia will be vying for who's the world's leading exporter. I'm guessing that uh, Russia would be the world's leading gas exporter, Saudi would be the world's largest oil exporter. Either way, putting a price cap uh, on Russian oil matters not uh, to the United States. Uh, it does matter, though, to others that need to import oil in large amounts. And of course, we know uh, that India and China will ignore uh, this price cap. And maybe it's already because they actually get cheap Russian oil uh, because of um, various deals that have been done uh, bilaterally. Either way, uh, uh, I don't see this as a, a killer blow uh, to Russia, uh, but I do see it damaging um, the European economy. And perhaps, again, I don't know enough about Japan, but I would guess uh, Japan too. Now, just in light of my previous uh, discussion about tanks, just thought I'd bung in um, the B-21, has everyone heard of the B-21? This is uh, the United States' latest uh, aircraft. This is a bomber uh, that's designed to replace the B-1 and the B-2. The B-2 is the um, stealth bomber, uh, you know, the sort of bat wing one. Um, so this is the new, new um, stealth uh, uh, bomber, uh, and it comes in at a call. This is each, remember, uh, the cost is just like, what? Is it, are you being for real? The cost each is 729.28 million. So that's near a billion each, each plane, a billion dollars. Well, not quite, but you get the point. And uh, what they're talking about, they've got six in production and they're talking about a production run immediately of 100. And apparently this is a fantastic plane. Um, you know, it's got latest stealth technology. It's also got flexibility built into it so with new computer programs, new weapons that haven't even been yet invented could be put onto this plane. But what this is, is it's a, a, a plane uh, that would presumably deliver um, missiles, uh, but also things, I would guess, uh, like bunk bunker busters. Now, I, I'm, I'm sort of risking uh, a bit there, depending on how heavy these bunker busters are. Either way, my own personal belief here is that this is $729.28 million worth of rubbish. It's a white elephant. Um, why? because all you need to do is look at the Ukraine war and ask yourself the question, how comes uh, the Russian Air Force, which, OK, isn't as advanced as America's, we know that, but nonetheless is a pretty mean Air Force with very highly sophisticated uh, weaponry, including uh, stealth uh, technology, uh, but all sorts of MiGs, all sorts of Sokhois, all sorts of, you know, like horrendously sophisticated aircraft cannot dominate Ukrainian airspace. And, you know, I've been reading uh, descriptions by uh, fighter pilots uh, that have been interviewed and they basically explain, well, one, the problem is uh, that Ukraine has got old style um, Soviet anti-aircraft uh, technology that's good enough to shoot down most Russian uh, aircraft. Plus the way that you evade, and that's been true, I think, since the 60s, the way that you evade uh, being shot down uh, by uh, surface-to-air missiles is you fly extremely low and you basically hug the trees, hug the fields. Um, and the problem with that is 
um, is that old-fashioned um, anti-aircraft fire, if it's concentrated enough, you don't aim at anything because these planes go so damn fast, you, you just hear them and they've gone. Uh, but what you do, you hear planes coming because you can find that out from people down the line and you just start firing in the air. And if you look at what's happened to Russian aircraft, as many of them have been hit by surface-to-air missiles uh, uh, as by um, anti-aircraft bullets, and for that matter, machine gun fire just shooting up. Um, so aircraft are very vulnerable. And I, okay, so what does this uh, B-21 do? Well, either it has to fly very high. Well, in that case, we shoot you down. Um, okay, at the moment, they can't detect it on radar. Um, or you fly very low, and then you just have an accident. Either way, why the hell do you need a plane to do that job when you can use a missile uh, to do it? So back in the 40s, back in the 50s, uh, to deliver a nuclear weapon on Moscow or Leningrad, uh, that was a suicide mission. So if you look at the American war plans, there they had these nuclear bombs and all the generals were saying, we wanna nuke the, the red bastards. And they said, well, we can do it. You'd have to send the pilots off, though, um, and they die. They crash because they can't come back. So you could reach Moscow, drop your bomb, and then you crash. Uh, so it took them into the 50s to develop refueling. It took them into the 50s where you did have very long-range aircraft. But crucially, with Sputnik, I think that was 1961 from my memory. I could be wrong, 61. I'm, that's my memory. What? was announced there was intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, Dr. Paul is going to give me the right date. Come on, Paul. You can't, we can't hear you. Either way, whatever the date was, whatever the date was, maybe I'm thinking of Yuri Gagarin. It 1958. 1958. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I was around, you were around, we remember it well. But the point would be... The Only just, I don't I remember know, it. The significance of Sputnik... Uh, wasn't just some satellite that went beep, beep, beep. It basically announced, we can get you. We can land a missile um, on Washington. We can land a missile on New York. And of course, what you had is a few years later is the Kennedy-Nixon presidential race of where the Democrat Kennedy accused the Republican, the incumbent um, um, party, of allowing a missile gap uh, to develop between the Soviet Union and the United States, which wasn't true, which was a lie. And Kennedy came in, remember, uh, this great hero who invaded Cuba, Bay of Pigs and all the rest of it. He came in with a missile program, um, which was the Minuteman missile. And they built a thousand, a thousand intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles. The significance of the Minutemen, of course, goes back to the American Revolution, but you could launch these missiles supposedly within a minute. The president gives the orders, vroom, uh, they're off and they're on target uh, um, uh, for uh, to hit the, hit the commies. Okay, we're now in a situation of where we're told that China's on course uh, to get 1,500 intercontinental missiles in place by 2035. What is the use of a B-21 under those circumstances? Because uh, even if it goes twice the speed of sound compared with a missile, it's slow. Even if it can't be detected, so what? Uh, the fact of the matter is what you've now got is missiles uh, that are not only fast, but can also maneuver and crucially since whenever um, is you can fit them with these things called MIRVs, multiple independently targeted vehicles or something along those lines. And they split apart. So you can have something like 15 warheads uh, on each missile and they all go to different destinations. In other words, whatever anti-missile systems you put in place, something will get through. And that's the point. And they always will get through. You just overwhelm uh, these systems with, with numbers. And uh, there you are. So I'm, I'm just left wondering. Uh, it's a bit like the latest US uh, aircraft carrier, uh, which again, I don't know how many billions uh, that costs, but it's the, the world's biggest aircraft carrier. I don't know how many aircraft it, uh, it bases. 
okay, I'm convinced that with an anti-ship um, um, uh, ballistic missile, it can shoot one down. It can shoot two down. But 10, 15, uh, I'm very sceptical. Um, so I do think that we've seen the future of warfare illustrated uh, uh, in Ukraine, and the future is missiles, uh, the future is drones, but also it's the war of position. Um, I'm not saying that's like every war, um, but yeah, uh, the Russian and Ukrainian forces were equal enough uh, to force Russia back into World War I uh, type uh, positions of um, digging in. And that's what we've seen uh, on the bank of the Dnepr. Russian forces are being pulled further back and one presumes that they're digging in and digging in uh, deep. Okay, so that's my bit there. Thought it was worthwhile a follow-up comment on um, Scotland and the Supreme Court. Very good article by uh, Mike McMahon going into the details of the Supreme Court judgment and uh, their paper. Um, but no surprise uh, when the Supreme Court announced that Scotland has no right of self-determination, how did the Scottish population react? Well, they said, well, we didn't know that. We thought this was a, a union of peoples, a united kingdom, a voluntary uh, uh, union. Well, it seems like it's not a, a voluntary uh, union in spite of uh, devolution uh, and a different law system. Uh, and all the rest of it. So what's happened is, according to at least one poll, now I'm not saying that this is representative and maybe it's a, a, an outlier, I don't know, it's only one I've read, but this is by Redfield and Wil Wilton Strategies. And what it says is that now 49% uh, uh, of the Scottish uh, people who were surveyed, I think it was by a thousand people, so they're taking it as statistically valid, 49% of the Scottish people want independence, 45% want no change, and therefore you've got to don't know or what's politics or what's England, um, um, little percentage uh, in between, i.e. there's been a reversal. And um, so basically um, uh, this judgment hasn't settled uh, matters. Um, it, 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 it settled matters in terms of Indy 2, and the Scottish government carrying out a legal referendum. Um, so in terms of Sturgeon and her determination to stick within the constitution, stick within the law, uh, this seems to me a pretty definitive judgment on her strategy. Uh, but in terms of Scotland feeling uh, dissatisfied with the existing constitutional arrangement, that hasn't gone away far from it. And so whatever what they say about the last referendum settling matters for a generation. It hasn't. And the fact of the matter is that Scotland has no constitutional way out. Hence the left, and I'll call it the left nationalists, which I would include SWP, SPEW, Socialist Appeal, uh, obviously the Scottish Socialist Party, anti-capitalist resistance, etc., etc., are going on about the answer is on the streets, what we want is demonstrations and what we want are strikes. Well, okay, so you have a 24-hour protest strike. Yeah, sure. Now, what does the Westminster government do about that? It says, well, there's an unofficial holiday going on in Scotland at the moment. It'd be business back to normal. Uh, do we then rush through legislation through Westminster, uh, allowing a referendum? I don't see why. So there's a strike in Scotland. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, in terms of if you want to assert your right, what you have to do is be prepared to take up arms. That's the answer. That's why the Catalonian um, referendum was never a starter, in my view. Have your referendum and they just arrest you for organizing an illegal referendum. It's against the law. We're arresting you. So what are you going to do about it? Well, if they'd done what they did in Ireland, uh, which is declare... Uh, the um, our, well, they, they basically uh, said we've got we won was it 70 percent uh, of the vote on an all Ireland basis or something like that there were the Ulster Unionists yes up north rump maybe um, Redmanites either way they constituted themselves in Dublin and declared themselves independent the, the Doyle 
uh, was the sovereign body. Uh, that's what the SNP needs to do uh, in, I'm not advising them by the way, I'm not advocating it, but that's what you need to do if you want to be independent. Now, in my view, if that happened, it would be a disaster for Scotland. It would be a disaster for England, but above all, a disaster for Scotland. Uh, Scotland isn't in the EU. Britain isn't in the EU. So to have a breakaway means you have customs posts. What will happen there? Uh, Scottish economy will go into crisis. And in my view, you'd see a mass exodus from Scotland of skilled workers and maybe not so skilled workers uh, to England or elsewhere. Anyway, uh, no, what we advocate is precisely uh, um, not tailing uh, the SNP, but raising the constitutional question. Uh, we advocate uh, a federal republic. That's something that should be championed by the working class and should be the form of working class rule in Britain, not because we're committed to federalism, but in our specific conditions, we recognize a national question in Ireland in favor of Irish unity. We recognize a national question in Wales. We're not making it up. And we recognize a national question in Scotland. And we want working class unity, uh, but not in the United Kingdom, uh, a republic. So we're raising fundamental uh, constitutional uh, question. Okay. Where have we got to? 47, time to wrap up. Cyril Ramaphosa, former leader of the National Union of Mine Workers in Scotland, hero of the SWP when, they, when the official communists and everyone else were holding up pictures of uh, Nelson Mandela. And you got the, the song, free, free Nelson Mandela. The SWP wanted to champion Cyril. And uh, for a short time it did, but now we've got Cyril, who's not only a former trade union leader and uh, South Africa's richest black businessman. Uh, we've also got him as president and lo and behold, uh, well, this one you couldn't make up, but what we've got is a story of corruption. And in this particular case, we've got the story of a sofa, <laughs> which I must admit I had to chuckle about. And the story is, uh, that he concealed in his sofa for some, I don't know what reason, either half a million dollars or $5 million. What $5 million looked like? Could you fit $5 million into a sofa? I don't know. Either way, the story is that some robbers came along, stole this money. He sent the police. They got these guys. And these guys were either bribed, terrified or whatever to cover up the story. Um, uh, but the story leaked. Uh, that's my version of it. And you've got a crisis now in the ANC and there's talk of impeachment. You need two thirds to do that. Either way, uh, this is a terrible uh, disappointment for those that had illusions in the ANC. And of course, that's the vast majority of the population in South Africa initially. Um, I don't know what uh, it got in the first polls, but it, it, it now is down to the 50 percentage, isn't it? Either way, um, what this is an indicate, it's an indication of uh, that once you've got a market, uh, what you get is corruption. And that clearly is the case in South Africa. In my view, it has to be the case in China. And this isn't just gonna concern um, corrupt officials like Z was saying, it, it, it's endemic. You try to mix the two, uh, what happens is the market um, will corrupt uh, the state. And of course, what you had historically under the last president, Zuma, uh, was all these stories of state uh, uh, capture. Uh, was it the Gupta uh, uh, brothers? Well, what you've got now is state capture by Ramaphosa, you know, <laughs> by a billionaire. Was he nearly a billionaire? I don't know. I'm sure he, if he was nearly a billionaire before he became president, I'm sure he's a billionaire. Uh, a couple of times over now. Okay, um, so hopefully we'll get Terry Bell from South Africa writing about that. But the sofa one, I just don't think you, you could make up. Apparently in South Africa, the problem you've got is you're not allowed to hold foreign currency, I think for more, longer than 30 days. And uh, so the way he avoided that, I think was put it in the sofa, but okay, no, I don't know. Okay, lastly, talking about governments uh, giving ground, uh, what we had is news today of news yesterday uh, of the government in Iran announcing concessions on the headscarf. 
And so we've had talk of the morality police being sent back to where they came from. Um, Yasmin uh, Mather has explained what that means to me. Um, either way, they're not on the street. They're not patrolling uh, now. I think they've got green and, is it green and white vans? Uh, they're not patrolling. Um, but there's talk of actually amending the constitution. Uh, and this is from the top. So the prosecuted general has actually uh, come out with sort of formulations about making things more flexible. Uh, I mean, I don't know what that means. Uh, it could be uh, that what they do is decriminalize it uh, and they make it equivalent of, um, you know, um, a fine and a fine only. Um, and there's talk of maybe using um, facial recognition technology, which apparently um, isn't impossible, uh, at least in urban parts of um, um, Iran. Um, so Iran apparently has got a more sophisticated um, traffic enforcement system than London. Um, and I'm sure with Chinese technology, it could do facial recognition. Okay, how do you actually spot the difference between a man and a woman? I don't know. Either way, there's talk. If you're driving, for example, with not a veil, and they got the, the number, obviously, of the, the vehicle, and uh, the person driving hasn't got a veil on, and it's registered to a female, uh, they ping you and say, you're fined $5. I'm just making it up now, by the way. Now, if you're rich, if you're well off, $5 is a nothing, and you just go like that. On the other hand, if you're walking around the streets, um, and you get $5 and you're poor, uh, maybe that's a different question. I don't know, but the point would be the significance of it is precisely a split above. And that's the real point. It's not trying to imagine how they're going to enforce this, uh, these new rules that are apparently due uh, for two weeks time. What we've, what we've had and what we've still got are those are defending the existing constitution, which says women must not go about in public unveiled and must uh, adhere to strict Islamic dress code. That's my understanding. So some elements have been defending that rigidly. And now you've got um, the situation where not the reformist wing, uh, but elements within the existing um, ruling or governing factions, including going right to the top to the supreme leader, are talking about flexibility. So you've not only got a split between what are called the so-called reformists, so-called because they actually want to keep the system, uh, you've got splits within the so-called hardliners. And what's also interesting um, is that apparently uh, we've had leaked uh, tape of uh, the Supreme Leader addressing uh, Revolutionary Guard commanders and others uh, in the regime and lecturing them about um, killing people. Uh, this is wrong um, and uh, shouldn't be allowed. And um, we need to understand. Now, there is talk um, that this shows you how much the uh, Revolutionary Guard is riddled with Israeli agents and all the rest of it. In my own humble opinion, we shouldn't dismiss the possibility of the Supreme Leader himself um, um, leaking um, that tape in order to precisely do a Z and blame lower officials for the fact that officially 200 plus people have died in these protests. Unofficially, it's more like 400 plus people have died in these protests. Uh, it wasn't me. It was the local officials. Either way, it's all signs of divisions and splits at the top. And the question is, of course, um, you know, are people going to be satisfied? Um, is it enough? Do people just want a situation of where uh, they're free, as they've been free, apparently, like in uh, North uh, Tehran, to walk around uh, without um, a headscarf? Um, is that all they want? Or do they want more? Do they? The slogans seem to indicate they actually want rid of the regime. The, the slogan is, isn't it? Death, death to the uh, clerics, death to Khomeini. Yes, yeah, sometimes it's also added to show the politics of it, death to the Shah. 
Um, so we're not royalists. We're not wanting the old regime. We don't want America. That's that's what that slogan indicates. So my guess, for what it's worth, um, and again, who am I? I'm sitting in London. Uh, but my guess is that it's too little, too late. Um, people won't be satisfied. Quite the opposite. Uh, they will be fueled. Uh, because after all, if you look at the reports we've had of workers going on strike, while they've linked themselves in solidarity to women and students and national minorities, uh, what they're going on strike on uh, about is things like no pay. We haven't been paid for six months or we're being paid too little uh, or, or we haven't got a proper contract. Um, so what we've got is is protests that go beyond the veil what we've got is protests by national minorities the kurds the baluchis um so you know again i don't know uh, but it does strike me you know that lenin's famous uh, statement that a revolutionary situation um isn't um, simply that the um, the masses refuse to be ruled in the old way it's that uh, the rulers cannot rule in the old way. Well, we're now having onto the agenda uh, that the rulers cannot rule in the old way. The last thing I just wanted to uh, comment on is our interesting article in this week's paper. Oh, excuse me, I'm just reaching up to get it. In this week's paper translated by uh, Comrade Mather, the article, um, by Comrade uh, Borhan um, and what he's saying. I mean, he, he's quite right in my view uh, to highlight the limits um, of spontaneity um, that against the Islamic regime, no matter how split it is, uh, you know, uh, just demonstrating, just striking um, isn't enough. And he is talking, for example, about the possibility of shores Shoras in Farsi means councils, and obviously there's a reference, and it's there in the article uh, about Russia in 1917. But what I would say, you know, with due modesty, is that what the comrade misses is the P question. Uh, because precisely uh, in Russia, you had Soviet power, and you had Soviet power very quickly in 1917. Uh, the workers didn't need to be prompted. Uh, it was sort of in their DNA uh, to set up Soviets. So they didn't need the Mensheviks. They didn't need uh, Kerensky. Uh, they started setting up Soviets. Uh, the delegates were going to be sent to somewhere. So the problem was precisely uh, that in spring 1917, because of the persecution of World War I, uh, the Bolsheviks were incredibly weak and the Soviets were dominated by the Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries who gave away power to the newly formed provisional government. And so it does strike me what the comrade is saying is in its own way, a form of spontaneity that workers, yes, will form um, in the conditions of Iran if there's a democratic space that allows them to do so. Councils, I'm sure that will happen. The problem is, what about the political leadership? And that's where when the comrade says no general staff, I think he's absolutely right. Uh, the question is that he doesn't raise um, the construction of a party now. Um, and that's my fear, because, you know, waiting till the revolutionary situation to build a party, you've already lost. And so my fear is uh, that what we're moving towards in Iran is a revolutionary movement uh, that's creating a revolutionary situation, but with no revolutionary party, you could end up in a situation which is quite conceivable that what you end up with is worse uh, than what you've got today. Uh, we can't do anything about it. Um, you, you're not going to, we would never turn around to demonstrators or strikers and say, well, you'll end up with something worse. But that was the truth about uh, 79. You know, there was no party. The Shah's regime is in crisis. The people refused to be ruled in the old way. And yeah, it would seem the Americans would prefer putting in Khomeini uh, to the Reds, not that the Reds were powerful. But that was, that was their calculation. Khomeini was allowed to move. They backed Khomeini coming to power. Uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. So of course we support the protests, of course we do. 
but precisely this could be an opportunity the Americans, the Israelis, the Saudis have been looking for, or maybe elements of the army, the Revolutionary Guard, who knows, someone will come in uh, and fill the vacuum. And uh, precisely faced with the people risen, um, they could at some point, they will at some point, uh, turn to the methods of oppression. That's it. Thank you, Oliver.